Good morning. To all those in Austin, Texas, and over the airwaves who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I was five years old when our parents ushered the three of us kids into that living room in Palos Heights, Illinois. That's where we were living at that time. And they sat us down on that brown, scratchy couch. It was our main couch then, but it's now the one that's in the basement. You know that one? And I can remember sitting there, and Dad gets down on one knee, and he tells us the news. Mom is pregnant! And the cushions around me started jumping up and down. My older sister, by two years, she started praying immediately for a little what? Girl. Finally, a little sister. And my brother, he's older by a couple more years. His brain started turning with all the baby names that he could think of. And Danny, well, he was just a little bit slow. He thought to himself, pregnant? Wow, that sounds serious. Mom should see a doctor, quick. (laughs) Mom or dad, I forgot who it was, got down and talked to little Danny, the five-year-old, and explained, Mommy's going to have a baby, and you're going to be a big brother. And it took a while for that news to sink in, if you can imagine. It sunk in, and as it was sinking in, I can't remember if it was 24 hours or 48 hours later, but it finally sunk all the way in, and I took my grievance to my mom. (laughs) Mom, that means that I'm not going to be the baby anymore. Translated, this creature in you is going to take my throne. It's going to come out, and it's going to take my place at the table. It's going to be fed first. It's going to take my seat on your lap during story time. It's going to get to lick the spoon. It's going to invade my toys and commandeer all of my play space. This thing was a huge deal in this five-year-old's mind that this baby was coming, and I wasn't going to be the baby anymore. It was what you would call a watershed moment. Have you ever had one of those moments before in your life? Yeah, it was a watershed moment for a little five-year-old to know that his role in the family was changing, and it was hard to deal with in the moment. But it finally came, and it was a girl. Becky was ecstatic, and she got the name that my brother chose, Anna. And I grew to understand after that watershed moment that my place in life wasn't to be a baby, but my place in life after that moment was to be a big brother And it took some months to get used to that, but eventually I learned to love the position in life that God put me in, to protect, defend, and tease my little sister, just like a good big brother should in love. Maybe you've had that watershed moment um, with a new family member. It can be a positive experience, watershed moments, or maybe, maybe it was a, an inheritance that you received that changed your life completely and you saw all the opportunities in front of you. Maybe it was your first job. Maybe it was a negative, a breakup with somebody that you fell in love with. Or maybe it was a best friend who betrayed your trust and you learned something new about humanity. The thing about watershed moments are that we can often form our worldview about, about our life and our identity around one of those moments. And that can be dangerous. It's dangerous because that's not the way that God views you 
And that's not the identity that he gives you, whether that moment is good or that moment is bad. But he's actually given you and me something greater in a bigger identity, in a bigger watershed moment that's like an umbrella over all the other watershed moments because it defines you for who you really are as a man, as a woman, as a child, wherever you are in life. And that starts right here in the watershed moment of baptism. That's the way Paul talks about it. Jesus' apostle in, a, in Titus chapter 3. He's talking to a young missionary who is named Titus. This young missionary is to go to the island of Crete, and he's writing to him at Crete, and Titus is to raise up leaders in the congregation. And in chapter 3, Paul encourages Titus to, 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 to encourage the saints, encourage the believers with their true identity, with that, with that identity watershed moment that, 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 that drips down into all their areas, other areas of life, and that is their baptism. And my encouragement today from God's Word is that you and I no longer see ourselves as defined by those moments or defined by the deceptions that the devil would have us believe, but instead to be defined by that big moment in baptism. A moment that reborns you, rebirths you, rescues you, renews you, and gives you a new identity. And so here it is on page 7 in the service folder, also up on the screen. Paul says this, before he gets to the watershed moment, he tells you where you came from so you can appreciate it all the more. He says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. What he's saying here is the life that we used to have before baptism. And what he's saying is this, that you live a life, by nature, a life of deception, because by nature, we are deceived and enslaved. Um, a recent poll came out, a recent study, of, of a poll of Americans, and it says that 98% of Americans believe that honesty is a very important value. Okay? That's great news, isn't it? What's the other side of the study? The reality. They polled, and they, they found out that, well, I'm going to ask you, if you had a guest, how many times a day do you believe that uh, average American is lied to face-to-face? Any guesses? How many, Beth? Ten. Ding, 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 right on. We're lied to ten times a day right to our face. That's the average American. Or the study goes on and it says, how many times per day are you lied to through social media or the screen or advertising? How many times a day do you want to guess? I'll give you a hint. It's more than ten. More than 50, multiply that times four, and you got the number. Over 200 times, or about 200 times, we're lied to, inadvertently. Couples, one in every 10 conversations in North America, in America, include a lie. You see, we live by nature in a society that is saturated in lies, and so we wonder why we're over-medicated, over-worked, over-stimulated, and, and, and have these over-expectations uh, for everybody around us because we live by nature in lies. And Paul says this, he says, by nature, where you used to come from, you used to be deceived. There's deceptions out there that are so true today, especially in North America. Deceptions for you young women. That your body needs to be perfect or close to perfect for you to have any worth or meaning in society or in God's eyes or, or, or in general. That's a lie. That's a deception. Or for a young 
businessman, the, the, the lie, the deception that you need to climb the corporate ladder or you need to have a certain paycheck or you need to go to certain promotions for you to have worth and for you to have value. That's a deception. That's a lie. Or for you people in relationships with another person, a spouse or a mate, you, you hold on to this expectation, this deception that in order for you to stay in a committed relationship, you need to be happy all the time. And that person on the other side of the table needs to make you happy all the time. Deception. Or here's, here's one for religious people. Here we are in church. The deception that, well, at least God saves you, but in order to remain in his good graces, that I need to stay in church, I need to be a good giver, I need to be a good Christian, I need to be charitable, better than that bum down the street. That's a deception. Or here's one of my favorites. Maybe you've heard this one before. That to be happy... And to have eternal happiness, you just need to find what works for you. Have you heard that one before? Here's the problem with all of those, that each of those deceptions, each of those lies, Paul says, they enslave you. Your passions and your pleasures, they enslave you, and they actually become the very thing that you're searching after. They they become a slave to you. So that if my worth is found in my body image, what am I going to be doing all the time? I'm going to be searching after magazine covers and comparing myself to the mirror, to other people, and when I finally don't find that happiness, I'm going to despair. I become a slave to vanity. If I find my worth climbing the corporate ladder or, 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 or getting promotions or, or, or finding a certain amount of money that I can earn, I'm going to find myself wondering, have I ever done enough? Have I, have I proven myself enough? You're going to run yourself silly on that hamster wheel. If I go down that road of deception that I need to be happy all the time in a relationship with that person across the table and that person's going to be, bring me eternal uh, happiness, I'm going to find myself <laughs> slave to the God of unexpected realization that nobody, no human being that's a sinner can bring me eternal happiness, and I'm going to lead a life of breakups. I'm going to lead a life of always searching for someone better. If I'm believing the lie that whatever, whatever I find that makes me happy is going to be my eternal happiness, I'm going to fall into <laughs> the bully mentality. Because Paul says this, he says that We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And if my philosophy in life is this, that I'm going to do whatever makes me happy, I'm not going to be any better than that bully at school that cuts in line and that takes the kindergarten's lunch money because I want it my way. And here's the thing about that is is, is that we create this world for ourselves, this world of being hated and hating one another. Because if my happiness is number one all the time, I'm going to view you in one of two ways. Either you're going to be a stepping stone for my happiness and I'm going to use you as a tool or you're going to get in the way of my happiness and I'm going to hate you and depose you because I'm pursuing my own happiness. That's why he says we lived and we created this world for ourselves in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now nobody, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian listening, wants to live in a world full of hate and being hated, a world full of malice and full of envy. Are you ready for the watershed moment? God says that he's created a world that's free of hatred and envy and malice and slavery and deception. Verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Can you say that back to me one time? But. (sighs) Ah. 
He appeared and he did something about it. Those are the most beautiful words coming right off of verse 3. When you know and you, you can feel that you're enslaved by yourself, you know that there's rescue. Uh, has anybody seen the movie Unbroken? Okay, plug your ears if you haven't seen it and you want to see it because this is a spoiler alert, okay? I actually had some people plug their ears for a service. But here's what happens. It's a story, a true story about American veteran POW named Louis Zampanini. Louis Zampanini is put into a Japanese war camp, a POW camp in World War II, and uh, he is treated sadistically by, by the camp uh, manager. He's shipped off from that camp uh, to another camp. It's actually a concentration camp that's far and it's deep in Japan. Um, he didn't know, or the other ones, the other POWs there, didn't know if anybody knew that they even existed there or if they had passed away. They were tasked at working themselves to death hauling coal up flights of stairs. And while they're there, um, one of their friends falls from a 10-story staircase to his death, and they're all told to keep on working just like nothing happened. Uh, They're told psychologically, they have psychological warfare going on, where over the speakers, it's announced that President Roosevelt had died. A man begins to cry. Everybody else is told to keep on working. They're told over the loudspeaker that the war is coming to an end soon, and Japan's about to win. They have broken spirits, and they know that nobody knows that they're there or even if they're alive anymore. And finally, the announcement comes over the loudspeaker one day that the fighting had ceased, the war was over, and Japan had won. And as a victory, celebration, all of the POWs were invited to go into the river to bathe for the first time. And so the soldiers in the camp take up their rifles and gather up all of the POWs and escort them to the river. And this whole time, they know what's about to happen. They go into the river, and as they begin to wade, all of the soldiers start to take aim at them. It's about to be a bloodbath. When all of a sudden, they hear a noise in the distance. It's an airplane. And it's not just any airplane. They recognize the sound of the airplane as it comes closer. It's a U.S. bomber that had found them. And it flies over them. And it puts out in Morse code saying, The war is over and the U.S. has won the war. You are safe. The shadow comes over them and you should see the, the, the movie. They, they start yelling and jumping in the water. All the guns come back up from the soldiers. And they drop gifts down from the bomber. Food and clothing and gifts. And they are rescued in the end. That's the picture that Jesus is giving us in our baptism when he says that the kindness and the love of God appeared when you were in slavery. When you had no way out, he appeared and the bomber came overhead dropping gifts from above. And this is the gift that he gives you from above that releases you from slavery, that uncovers the lie. And he, he says this, verse 5, this is how he appeared. He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. It is for free for all people. If we got our hands into that mucky mess of trying to save ourselves, we'd just be back at verse 3 again. But Jesus says this is something outside that comes in and rescues you. You can't rescue yourself. You need that bomber to fly overhead and give you the gifts. That's what's happening in your baptism. It's a rescue that's for free because that's the only way that we can be free is if God gives us that gift. 
And he says this, he says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So baptism rescues us from slavery and renews us daily for free. Watershed moment number one in your baptism. You're rescued. Think about the movie Unbroken. There's a freedom from your sins. All of that past, all of that past deception, all of that past in slavery, he says, I've set you free from that, and you don't have to go down that road any longer. You're forgiven. And then he says this is a rebirth, a restart, and a rescue, but it also is a renewal that is demonstrated by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit, and that word renewal, maybe you have Netflix or Amazon Prime, maybe you put your renewals of your products and of your subscriptions on auto-repeat and you don't even see the bill because it goes right onto your credit card. Well, here's, here's the neat thing about baptism is that it renews. And the Holy Spirit says this is a baptism that gives rebirth. And when you fall, because you're probably saying, Preacher, that's great that you're giving me baptism and God gives me baptism in, his, in a rebirth, but I still struggle with sin. I feel like I'm living in verse 3 again. Hated and being hated and, and, and envy and malice and all of this stuff. Well, this is where the renewal comes in. God says, My Holy Spirit... And the power of baptism doesn't give up on you. He renews his forgiveness again and again and again on autopilot. And every time that you fall, I'm there to pick you up. Why do we fall? It's called user error. This week, I was with some friends, and I was complaining about my cell phone battery because I charge it up to 100% overnight, and then at the end of maybe... Lunch, it's down to 25%. And this isn't an old phone. It's not a new phone. It's not the latest version. But I was complaining. I started thinking to myself and saying out loud to my friends, yeah, this must be a dud battery. And that was a shady place that I went to buy this thing anyways. I wonder if it's their fault. I wonder if they're selling me a piece of junk. And I started going on and on with all the complaints. My friend took the phone from me, and he showed me. I was running over 40 apps in the background at once. And everybody in the car got a good laugh because it was the user error. When I return to my sin, it's not that baptism didn't work. You know what that is? That's user error. I'm not looking at the rebirth and I've forgotten about the renewal that I have. God's grace is complete. God's grace is working. I return to it. I'm forgiven again because, number one, watershed moment, it's a baptism of rebirth and rescue. Number two, it's a baptism of renewal. And finally, he says... Verse 6, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Jesus was baptized, we'll get to that in a second, lived and died in your place so that you can be baptized into his place. That's what that verse is saying. It's saying that you're justified and that you're getting the gifts that Jesus has earned for you. The story of Jesus is this. He was born just like you and me. He lived a life, except he never believed the lies. And he never fell into the slavery. He lived that perfect life that God said that you and I should live in communion with him. So that when he died on the cross, he took all of the sins that we have, and he was the perfect sacrifice. And he justified the whole world. And he said, I've done this for the sins of the whole world. But here in baptism, you're getting that gift. And it's for you. So that when you're baptized, it's just as if, Pastor Dan, it's just as if Brady lived the life that Jesus lived. And it's just, like, just as if Emma never did any of the sins that Jesus also never did. 
and that is being given to you right here in the water. It's a new identity. And instead of being slaves, like in verse 3, what are we now? Instead, it says in verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, again, a free gift, we might become what? Heirs, not slaves. A slave goes into work and puts in his time to earn, maybe, maybe to earn the respect or, or, or maybe to earn or the favor of the person that he's working for. A slave works out of fear. A slave works out of expectations. A slave works out of, uh, out of, out of, out of this, this desire to please. And to, to, but, but you and I aren't slaves, it's saying. It's saying that you and I, when we're baptized, are heirs. We don't work out of fear anymore. Our identity is wrapped up in our baptism. Which, by the way, somebody else was baptized, and he didn't need to be baptized because he was sinless. What was his name? Jesus. He put himself into your baptism because he wanted to be baptized to identify with you as a sinner and with me as a sinner so that you would have him in your baptism. It's interesting that when Jesus comes out of the water at his baptism, and today is Jesus' baptism Sunday that we talk about, that his father speaks from heaven, and his father says this, this is my son, you are my son, talking to Jesus, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Our new identity isn't in our body image, isn't in how much money we make, isn't in how happy we are with the person or a mate that we have even. It's not wrapped up even in your responsibilities as a worker or as a parent or as a single person. Your identity really is wrapped up in this, that when God looks down on you and he's given you rescue, he's given you renewal, and he's given you new identity, he looks down on you and he only sees one thing, a baptized child of God over which all of the blood of Christ remains. And so he looks down on you and me in our baptism. In a couple moments, we're going to see this happening in real time. But he looks down at you and me, and he says, You, my son, you, my daughter, with you I am well pleased. And so that changes my identity. Instead of these watershed moments where I find myself either disappointed or in moments sometimes happy, I find my true happiness and my true identity in the watershed moment that he gives me at my baptism. This week, as you go into your workplaces, as you go into your homes, maybe some of you, do you have lists that you make? Maybe there's lists people out there, tasks lists. I have a blue notepad that I write down tasks on. Very often I can get defined by that task list and how well I did that that week on that task list. But my encouragement to you, whether you have a task list or maybe if you just look yourself in the mirror every morning, who does that? Take a marker, not a permanent marker or a permanent marker, and write, I am a forgiven child of God, washed by the blood of my Savior. Write it on your mirror. Try that. Write it on top of your task list because those tasks, they don't define you. Your baptism, your new identity. Baptism is a watershed moment. It's a moment when you have rebirth. It's a moment when you have renewal. And it's a moment when God reminds you of your new identity. So take that with you and keep that watershed moment in your heart now and forever. Amen.